100 years ago, 18 million people died in the First World War, around 4.5 million people a year. It was considered the um, greatest loss of human life in the 20th century. What's perhaps not so widely appreciated is that the annual death toll from diabetes is similar. In 2015, 5 million people died of diabetes. That's one person every six seconds or 600 people an hour. In 2014, 422 million people in the world had diabetes, about 8.5% of the adult population. And in people over the age of 65, the incidence was even greater, being around 25% of the global population. These numbers are likely to be even greater now because diabetes seems to increase inexorably every year. And it's predicted that by 2040, 642 million people in the world will have diabetes. The most frightening thing is that children are increasingly affected. Diabetes imposes a severe economic burden upon both the individual and the state. In 2015, the USA spent an astronomical $673 billion treating diabetes and its complications. That's 12% of the national healthcare budget. In the UK, we currently spend over £1.5 million an hour on diabetes, or £25,000 every minute. That's around 0.5% of the UK GDP. These numbers are set to increase annually because of the rise in diabetes. And they're clearly unsustainable. It's simply unrealistic for a country to spend almost all of its healthcare budget on diabetes. So we really need to understand what diabetes is, how it, why it's increasing at such a rapid rate, and what we can do about it. My name is Frances Ashcroft, and I'm Professor of Physiology at the University of Oxford. And my aim in this talk is to give you a brief introduction to diabetes and to a rare form of diabetes known as neonatal diabetes that is caused by mutations in an iron channel, which is one of the things that I work on myself. Diabetes is characterized by an increase in the blood sugar concentration, and this occurs because there is insufficient insulin for the body's requirements. Insulin is a hormone that's made by the beta cells of the uh, pancreatic islets. And it plays a very important role in regulating your blood sugar concentration. And it's incredibly important that your blood sugar is retained within narrow limits. If it falls too low for even just a few minutes, then the brain is starved of fuel and you will die. On the other hand, if it's too high for too long, as happens in chronic diabetes, then you will develop the uh, complications of diabetes, secondary complications such as heart disease and kidney disease. Insulin is the only hormone that's able to lower the blood glucose level, which is why it plays such an important role in regulating your blood sugar level. So every time you have a meal, um, your blood sugar will rise, and uh, that will stimulate the release of insulin from the pancreatic beta cells, and that in turn will stimulate the uptake of glucose into muscle, liver, and fat, thereby restoring the blood sugar level to its resting concentration. If you have insufficient insulin for the body's needs, this can occur either because of impaired insulin action in the tissues, a process known as insulin resistance, which is often produced by obesity, or it can occur as, as, a, consequence, as a consequence 
of um, reduced insulin secretion from the pancreatic beta cells themselves. Insulin was discovered in 1922 in Canada by a team of four people, Charles Best, Frederick Banting, James Collip, and John McLeod. And this picture shows you Charles Best and Frederick Banting with their dog Marjorie, who was the first dog they were able to keep alive by injecting her with insulin after the pancreas had been removed. Diabetes is a very serious disease. Prior to the availability of insulin, patients developed very high blood sugar levels that led to excessive urination and thirst. They also suffered muscle wasting and weight loss because insulin is required for glucose to be taken up by muscle and fat. Hence, diabetes has been described as starvation in the midst of plenty. It was almost invariably fatal. Prior to um, the availability of insulin, patients were kept on a starvation diet in order to keep them alive. And this picture shows you a young girl, um, 13 years old, before insulin therapy. She weighed 45 pounds and she could barely walk. She was fortunate because she was one of the first people to be treated with insulin. And this shows her a few months after taking insulin. And you can see there's a, a dramatic improvement. Such Extraordinary pictures aren't seen today because patients are given insulin long before they ever reach this stage of the disease. However, insulin is not a cure. Most diabetic patients will gradually develop secondary complications due to poorly controlled blood sugar levels. And these include an increased risk of cardiovascular disease, such as heart attacks and stroke. Uh, the blood vessels in the eye are affected which can lead to blindness. Then the peripheral nerves in the uh, extremities can be damaged, which leads to loss of sensation in the limbs. Poor circulation may also lead to tissue damage and ulcers, um, necessitating amputation of the feet or lower limbs. And many people with diabetes will develop kidney failure, which will necessitate um, dialysis. All of these complications are reduced by good control of the blood sugar levels. But of course, it's far more difficult for an individual to do this by monitoring their sh blood sugar levels than it is for their pancreatic beta cells to do it. There are several different types of diabetes. Type 1 diabetes is childhood in onset and affects around 5 to 10% of people with diabetes. It's caused by an autoimmune attack on the pancreatic beta cells, which results in their destruction. And consequently, these individuals will be on insulin for the whole of their lives. The much more common form of the disease is type 2 diabetes, which affects you know, over 90% of patients with diabetes. It's extremely common, 422 million people globally. And the Human Genome Project and subsequent studies have shown that multiple genes are associated with an increased risk of type 2 diabetes. But in, in e the case of each individual gene, the increase in risk is only very small. So it's thought that it must be a combination of many genes that's required in order to enhance your risk. Unfortunately, in most cases, we've no idea what these genes actually do. Diabetes is also enhanced by age and by obesity. We've still no idea how age increases your risk of getting diabetes. In the case of obesity, um, it's thought that it's probably due to insulin resistance, which results from obesity. 
And then there are some very rare forms of diabetes known as monogenic diabetes, which are caused by mutations in an individual gene, a single gene. And in many cases, it is known exactly what these genes do. These um, forms of diabetes are extremely rare, and they present either at birth, in which case they're known as neonatal diabetes, or in early adult life, when they're known as maturity-onset diabetes of the young. The big problem with type 2 of diabetes, and the reason that diabetes is increasing so rapidly today, is obesity. Because obesity exacerbates the risk of type 2 diabetes. And you, that can be seen very simply here, where the body mass index, the BMI, is plotted against the relative risk of diabetes. And you'll see that as body mass index um, rises, then the risk of diabetes also increases. And this is a, a map of a plot of obesity trends in different countries. And you can see that in many different countries, the risk of that the, the, the risk of, of the rate of diabetes is rising dramatically and doesn't actually show much sign of slowing down. And if we look at this slide, uh, you will see this, this also plots the incidence of global obesity in different countries. And 25% of people in the country have obesity in those countries highlighted in the dark red. Whereas in orange, you will see that it's actually not, not very much less, between 20 to 25% of people. This is an enormous number of people. And this is the reason why the risk of di why, why diabetes itself is increasing so much today. Of course, we all know the problem, why obesity is increasing. It's very simple. It's just one should eat less and exercise more. And this is demonstrated, actually, in this very interesting uh, figure that I have here, which shows the increase in new cases of type 2 diabetes in Norway between 1925 and 1955. So the years are plotted along the bottom, and the newly diagnosed cases, um, against the newly diagnosed cases, for patients who are under 30 years, who probably have type 1 diabetes, and patients who are over 60 years, who probably have type 2 diabetes. And what you'll notice is that type 1 diabetes barely changes, but type 2 diabetes shows a dramatic crash during the years of the Second World War. And this is almost certainly because they actually had less to eat, and um, they probably also had a much better diet. And there's some very interesting study done in Slovenia during the uh, recent Bosnian War, where it was, there was considerable concern about whether there would be enough insulin in the country. And indeed, lots of, paper, lots of patients were indeed hospitalized. But it wasn't because there were, they didn't have enough insulin. It was because they were taking too much, because they'd lost weight and they had not adjusted their insulin dose, and so they were becoming hypoglycemic. So perhaps we can think about uh, how one's diabetes risk is related to obesity and age in the following way. This blue line here indicates uh, the level of beta cell function required to maintain normoglycemia. And and here is beta cell function plotted as plotted against age. For a normal person with um, no diabetes risk variants, their, their beta cell function will decline with age, as shown here. But if they become obese, it will decline 
more rapidly because of the rise in insulin resistance um, and possibly some, some, also some effect on beta cell function itself. So they will develop diabetes in later life. However, if you start out with more negative gene variants, then you may um, cross this line and develop diabetes even at normal body weight. And unfortunately, if you become obese, you will develop it at a much earlier age. So I think it's very important to remember that just because you're obese doesn't actually mean that you will get diabetes, because there are many people who are very severely obese who don't have diabetes, just as, as you can see from this, there are many people who are of completely normal weight who will develop diabetes at some point in their lives. But what all, these, what all of these things show is that there isn't enough insulin for the body's requirements. There's good evidence that insulin secretion is actually impaired in type 2 diabetes. And that's shown in this slide here, where what is plotted is insulin secretion in pancreatic islets isolated from cadaver organ donors who were either not diabetic or had type 2 diabetes. And what you see on the left in red is what happens when you elevate the extracellular glucose from 3.3 to 16.7 millimolar. And you can see there's a very big increase in insulin release. But if you have a look on the right, where we're looking at the islets from the type 2 diabetic donor, you'll see that there's almost no increase in response to glucose. And this is the reason why insulin secretion is impaired in, in, in the whole organism. It's simply not being released from the pancreatic beta cells. And it turns out that an iron channel, known as the ATP-sensitive potassium channel, my favorite iron channel, plays a very important role in this process. Just to remind you what iron channels are, they are very small pores that sit in the membranes that surround every one of your cells. So every one of your cells has a membrane around it, which acts as a barrier between the inside world and the outside environment. And of course, things need to get in and out, and they do so because of transport proteins in the membrane of the cell. And one type of these proteins are the ion channels, which allow, as you can imagine, the movement of ions. So when these um, channels are open, then ions can flow through, as shown here. And when the channels are shut, ion movement is prevented. And because the ions are charged particles, they'll carry a current. And so when they move, we see current flow, and it's possible to measure the very tiny current that flows through the ion channels when they're open, and therefore study their function. And it turns out that the KATP channel, um, which is the ion channel that plays such an important role in insulin release, is a very complicated molecule. It's an octameric complex composed of two different types of proteins, a pore-forming subunit made up of four KIR 6.2 uh, subunits, and each of these is associated with a regulatory subunit known as a sulfonylurea receptor, or SUR1. The ATP-sensitive potassium channel, or KATP channel as it's known, plays a very important role in insulin secretion because it couples the metabolism of the cell, or glucose metabolism, to uh, insulin release. And it does this in the following way. So when blood sugar levels are low, the metabolism of glucose, the breakdown of glucose, is very slow. And the consequence of this is that the KATP channels are open. And the movement of potassium ions out of the cell through this pore 
generates a negative membrane potential. And what this does is to keep the calcium channels, another type of ion channel in the cell, closed. And because calcium has to come into the cell to trigger insulin secretion, this means that there is no insulin secretion. So when metabolism is low, the KATP channels are open and there's no insulin secretion, as you see here. However, when your blood sugar level goes up, glucose is taken up, metabolized, broken down by the cell to produce a chemical which is known as ATP. And ATP binds to the potassium channels and shuts them. And the consequence of that is that the membrane drifts to a more positive potential and the calcium channels, you see here, then open. And so calcium can flood into the cell and stimulate insulin secretion. So when metabolism is high due to elevated blood glucose, the potassium channels are closed and insulin is released. Now you can immediately see that if for any reason the channels didn't close in response to elevation of ATP, in response to elevation of glucose, then no insulin would be released and you'd get diabetes. And this is exactly what happens with certain mutations which are found in either of the two subunits of the KATP channel. What they do is they prevent the cell from responding to elevated ATP. And the consequence of that is that the channel never closes despite very high blood sugar levels. And that means no insulin is released and the patient gets neonatal diabetes. I use this slide also to point out that sometimes things in science take a very long time. We first showed that the channels were involved in insulin secretion in 1984. And at that point, it didn't take a genius to realize that if there were mutations, they, um, they might cause neonatal diabetes. But it took a further 20 years to actually find those mutations. And in the end, they weren't found by me at all, but by, by, by a friend of mine. This is the way science works. Neonatal diabetes is defined as diabetes that presents within the first six months of life. And it can result from mutations in either of the two subunits of the KATP channel, whose genes are known as KCNJ11 and ABCC8. But as you can see here, many other mutations in different genes can also cause neonatal diabetes, either because they impair insulin secretion or perhaps because they prevent the pancreas developing properly and beta cells are simply not present. But I'm going to focus on just those ones that produce, uh, that, that are found in the KATP channel. And these are activating mutations and they're extremely rare. This is why they took such a long time to find. Um, about one in 200,000 live births. And patients develop very high blood sugar levels within six months of life. And they usually have a, a really low birth weight because they're lacking in insulin, which is a, a growth factor. And about 50% of all of the cases of neonatal diabetes are caused by these gain-of-function mutations in either KIA 6.2 or SUR1. And interestingly, most of them occur spontaneously, which means that they're found in the patient, but not in either the father or the mother. And in all cases, what the mutations do is they prevent the channel from closing in response to um, elevated ATP um, as a consequence of glucose metabolism. And these very, very interestingly, um, some of these mutations 
produce a transient form of diabetes. So the patient develops diabetes and then it goes away again and then it comes back again in later life. And we still don't really understand why it should undergo this remitting, relapsing time course. Other mutations cause a permanent form of neonatal diabetes. And in about 20% of patients, uh, they suffer not only neonatal diabetes, but also developmental delay and muscle weakness. And 3% of these also have epilepsy. And this has been named DEN syndrome for developmental delay, epilepsy, and neonatal diabetes. And the reason that all these additional uh, symptoms are found in these patients is because the KDP channel isn't only found in pancreatic beta cells. It's also found in many other, many other cell types where it links metabolism to electrical activity. In the brain, for example, it's involved in neuronal firing. In the heart, it protects against ischemic stress. In the pancreas, it's involved in insulin secretion. And it's also found in skeletal muscle. And it turns out, very, very interestingly, that um, only the brain, uh, that the muscle weakness is caused by um, neuronal problems. It's not due to a problem in the muscle, but simply to one in the nerve. And the fact that the KATB channel is mutated in heart and skeletal muscle does not somehow affect, affect its function. And this is because in the heart and skeletal muscle, the KIA 6.2 subunit couples up to a completely different form of sulfonylurea receptor. The regulatory subunit is different. And this is why it's not as sensitive to metabolism as in the brain and the pancreas. And in my next um, talk, I'm going to talk um, in more detail about how the KATP channel gives rise to mutations in the KATP channel, give rise to uh, neonatal diabetes, and more importantly, how we can treat that with drugs instead of insulin. So I'd like to acknowledge uh, all of those people in my team who've worked with me over the years on this problem, the patients and their clinicians, the funding bodies, and of course, my wonderful collaborators, um, both at Oxford and at Exeter, uh, the people who in fact discovered these mutations that cause neonatal diabetes.